Hello and welcome to the official Building Your Business podcast series presented by Archer Gallon Redshaw Chartered Accountants. Our firm has launched this podcast series to help simplify some of the complex challenges that occur when owning and operating a business and to assist business owners to better understand the inner workings of their organisation, regardless of which industry you operate within. Every month, we'll be releasing a new episode featuring special guests from industry, as well as Archie Gallen Redshaw directors Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic, and Valda Glynn to provide their commentary on a variety of business management topics alongside expertise surrounding accounting, taxation, and business strategy. Welcome to our podcast series, Building Your Business. Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Lewis and you're listening to the Building Your Business podcast presented by Archer Gallen Redshaw Chartered Accountants. In today's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by very special guest Matthew Joyner, partner from Core Cordis, alongside AGR Executive Chairman Ian Walker. Welcome, Matthew. Thank you, Chris, for the opportunity. It's great to have you here. And um, I mean, we'll dive into the topic on uh, director penalty notices shortly, but um, welcome as well, Ian. Thanks, Chris. So, uh, as mentioned, uh, across the session today, uh, the three of us will be discussing all things ATO director penalty notices with both Matthew and Ian providing their expertise across why these notices have been developed, um, the ATO's approach in this respect as well, uh, management and prevention strategies should you receive a warning letter or a director penalty notice, um, what options business leaders and C-suite management teams have in those cases, um, and also, uh, I guess, a little bit on the, the latest business sentiments and, and market t- conditions as well. For those listening, as some background, Matthew's a respected practitioner with a specialist experience in corporate recovery, restructuring, and personal insolvency matters. Uh, he provides solutions to clients uh, across major banks, financiers, creditors, including the ATO. Um, and has undertaken numerous business reviews to assist stakeholders with underperforming businesses and those facing financial difficulties. Um, Across a 32-year career, uh, Matthew is a fellow of the Australian Restructuring and Solvency and Turnaround Association. He's a chartered accountant. He's a course leader as well for AITA and a registered liquidator. So I guess to to kick us off, um, during COVID-19, the ATO were obviously very much in the the front foot and sort of pulling back um, from activities regarding chasing debt. Um, Obviously, that was a response to the economic conditions caused by the pandemic at the time, obviously, where potentially the other side of that, and I guess the ATO is going to be re-engaging with businesses now to collect those tax debts. So um, Matthew, I'd just be keen to find out a little bit more about that. And, and obviously we've heard of the uh, the number of, I guess, pre-warning letters and, and director notices out there at the moment. So it'd be great to just hear your first initial thoughts on that. Yes. Well, the change in the ATO's policy started to occur late last year with phone calls being made, particularly to tax agents, uh, reminding taxpayers that clients have, may not be managing certain debts and then it uh, escalated from there this calendar year. Uh, not necessarily anything to do with the federal election result but uh, it did start uh, picking up in terms of recovery activity from early this year and as you said Chris there's been quite a number of uh, two types of warning letters issued and as you've mentioned before there could be in the order of 50,000 warning letters and since May this year uh, The ATO has disclosed that they've been issuing director penalty notices uh, at that time in May was 30 uh, 30 to 40 a week uh, and they're now up to 112 a day nationally. So 
they're out there. Those notices are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, those notices are driving quite a, a large percentage of the inquiry that we're getting from business owners, uh, most of which come through their accountants to us. Okay. Um, but it's also uh, driving concern with stakeholders involved if, if they ascertain that the directors of business have received one. And uh, the tax office made it very clear in a press release in May that it was a conscious policy decision on, on their part that uh, by May they'd uh, changed their strategy from supporting particularly small business that were doing it tough during the COVID restrictions mm-hmm. and those restrictions coming off to now uh, taking action to really try and engage with as many taxpayers as they could that, that aren't managing their tax debts. Okay, And they're the ones that uh, are being targeted and uh, particularly small businesses that haven't been uh, managing their pre-COVID tax debt. They're the ones that are, uh, we believe are being targeted. Mm-hmm. You know, I can give you a couple of examples uh, in that regard. Okay. Um, so for those listening that aren't familiar with director penalty notices, I wanted to kick off the discussion about what they are and then, as you say, some examples there um, surrounding mm. that would be great as well. Yeah, okay. Well, um, now the notices have been around for quite some time. I would think in the order of 10 to 15 years, notices have been around uh, as part of the Tax Administration Act legislation. They've been developed over time, and we, uh, some years back, we have two types of uh, director penalty notices or DPNs. One's called a traditional DPN, we like to call that a traditional DPN, and the other is a lockdown DPN. The lockdown DPN is uh, a little bit more difficult to explain. A traditional DPN is a notice that will be issued to directors of a company. It'll be sent to their residential address shown on the ASIC register, and it gives the directors 21 days from the date of that notice to take action. It reminds them of the outstanding liabilities, and it says to the directors, well, if you take one of these four options within the 21 days of the date of the notice, not from when they receive it, but from the date of the notice, then they are absolved from any personal liability for those company tax liabilities. Now, the notices can only include GST, PAYG and SGC. It's interesting at the moment, our experience has been that the tax office is only really targeting PAYG and SGC. There's been a change also in the policy in which uh, the notices give options to directors. Now, the traditional DPN gives the four options to do take action within 21 days, and that is pay the debt that's listed in the notice in full within 21 days, or appointed insolvency practitioner, which can be a liquidator, administrator, or a small business uh, restructuring practitioner. Okay. So the four options. Mm-hmm. And if yep. they, don't ex- uh, they don't take any of those steps within the 21 days. They're deemed to be personally liable for whatever the tax liabilities are in the notice. Before COVID restrictions, the notices gave directors a fifth option, which was to enter into a payment arrangement within the 21 days. Now, although the policy currently by the HO is by issuing these warning notices and, and direct penalty notices is to engage with people and get payment arrangements, they're not making an option for directors to avoid that personal liability. And I think that came about as a result of payment arrangements being entered into, directors being released, and then subsequently those payment arrangements being defaulted on. Okay. So they removed that, that, um, that, that option. Yep. You've, you're restricted to paying it in full and let's except the fact that the notice is there because the debt hasn't been paid and it can be unlikely 
that the debt can be paid. But obviously, if the notice is going to quite a number of directors, then there may be a director that has the capacity to resource funds to, to settle the liability if the company has failed to do so. Okay. So therefore, with um, respect to personal liabilities of the director, even if they get the payment plan approved, they're still going to be personally liable until the day it's repaid in full anyway. That's right. And in fact, another change in the practice that's occurred, we've seen since May, is that while a client is negotiating with the tax office to uh, get an agreed payment arrangement or renegotiate a payment arrangement previously from one that's defaulted. Tax office is now giving people a new payment arrangement but also a direct penalty notice at the same time. So it's a parallel liability. Mm-hmm. And if you read the material issued by the ATO, they call it a parallel liability. So it's really now intended to keep directors focused on ensuring compliance with uh, payment arrangements mm-hmm. by, by using these DPNs. And, and we know with payment arrangements, you know, your existing debt gets entered into for X amount of years, months, whatever it is, but then all other taxes thereafter have to be paid, lodged on time and paid in full. Yes. Now, what happens if, say, for example, we're in the, the September quarter, we're on a payment plan, our September bass <coughs> is due in October, and it's you know 100 grand and i can't pay it now i've lodged it on time tick but i can't pay the 100 grand now if i go in technically i'm in default yep pretty much the day after yes now the ato might take a few days to work that out so therefore they get hold of you the following week now if i've already had a dpn issued what happens at that point is it a case of the ato goes too bad too sad or we enter into another one or where does their patience in your experience, and I know it's only new, yeah. with respect to the timeframes post-COVID, where does the line get drawn? Yes, well, that's a subjective decision by the ATO internally, and I believe it will be based on the client's compliance history, e.g. what's their history in terms of lodgements in the past, what's the frequency of defaults on previous payment arrangements, mm-hmm. because the next step from, from there would be to get on the phone to the ATO to renegotiate a new payment arrangement. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may say, well, you've got a week to pay that that 100 grand. Mm -hmm. You've got a week to pay the 100 grand, then we'll give you a more permanent payment arrangement once that has occurred. Um, I I had an exact example like that uh, last week Mm -hmm. where the payment arrangement with the DPN arised in May for a three-year payment arrangement. And for the June quarter, the company failed to remit the SGC. Uh, their, their strategy is, and because of the relevance of the lockdown DPN, which I'll explain, is that they need to certainly report the, the shortfall SGC within three months of the lodgement date, which was the 28th of July. So they've got to do that by the 28th of October. That will prevent a lockdown liability from being created from the unpaid super. Will there be another penalty notice? Uh, potentially. But their strategy is to renegotiate that payment arrangement as soon as they've paid that superannuation. So they realised that to keep the payment arrangement on track, they need to rectify the default mm-hmm. and they may even have to make another instalment in advance as a show of good faith to renegotiate that existing 
three-year payment arrangement. Mm-hmm. Technically speaking, the tax office has powers to pursue the director yep. under the DPN because of the default on the payment arrangement. Mm-hmm. But practically speaking, I believe the policy of the ATO is allow you into a payment arrangement if you are making best efforts and you're rectifying arrears like late late payments that occur during the term of a payment arrangement. Mm-hmm. Okay. So therefore, in, in, in practical terms, if <coughs> I have a payment arrangement in place for the last year or two, I haven't had a DPN, and then I stuff up, Yep. they will say, yep, we can renegotiate, but at that point then they'll trigger an automatic DPN or... Well, it's up to them. It's up to them. The Tax Administration Act makes it clear that while there's a payment arrangement in place, mm. there won't be any new DPNs and there won't be any enforcement activity on the DPN while they're complying with the payment arrangement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that's good. So, sorry, the lockdown DPN is the other aspect to this that directors need to be aware of and it, it is fairly complex to explain... And it's like a liability that exists without sometimes getting a notice. But what I've seen happening this year is the tax office will issue two types of DPNs, letters, to a director. One will be the traditional DPN, 21 days to pay or appoint an insolvency practitioner and you avoid personal liability. And at the same time, if they've late reported or, uh, yeah, late reported on another liability beyond the three months that's passed after the due date, they can get what's called a lockdown DPN notice. And so I've uh, advised a director recently who received two notices in two days. One was a traditional DPN for PAYG and the other was a lockdown DPN for superannuation guarantee charge. Now that lockdown DPN notice said, you've got 21 days to pay and if you don't pay, you're liable. No other options to get out of the liability. So there's a lockdown DPN. So you mentioned there as well, obviously, the um, areas of complying and what happens if you do comply with uh, with what's coming through. The opposite of that, what happens if there is that non-compliance? What, um, what action's taken in those instances? We haven't seen a lot of activity until recently by the ATO in terms of recovery proceedings. <clears throat> and... and Obviously, the ATO has quite a number of different uh, powers available to it under its legislation. One of the avenues is the issuing of garnishee notice. It's not been discussed in any of the correspondence that tax officers had with any of the people that I've consulted with at this stage. It does get mentioned in a reminder as um, a legal disclosure that the ATO will make during negotiations over a payment arrangement that they have the power to do it, but in practice they're not issuing them at the current time. The problem with the garnishee notice is it has a drastic impact on a business's cash flow. It'll okay. freeze bank accounts, um, it'll raise concerns with banks, um, and it'll effectively halt a business. Uh, the, the drastic impact on the ATO taking uh, money out of a bank account by, by force of that uh, garnishee notice. The other aspect of recovery that the ATO might take and has done pre-COVID is by commencing recovery proceedings against the company itself, and that could be a statutory demand that gets sent to the company's registered office, like yourselves, and that's a formal demand for all tax liabilities outstanding, uh, payable within 21 days of service of the notice. And if that fa- if if that's not complied with, 
then the tax office can proceed to apply to the court for the appointment of a liquidator to that company. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of that activity before COVID and, and obviously there was a halt in that sort of action by the ATO during the COVID restrictions. But that activity is now coming back mm-hmm. and on average at the moment the ATO is making, around the country, it's making about one application a day to wind up a company, about five a week. Okay. Uh, the other aspect... Uh, to the liability, as I mentioned, is a parallel liability, so the director is liable as a result of the non-compliance. And if there's no new payment arrangement in place, then the ATO um, could well commence bankruptcy proceedings against the director as well. If, if the company goes into administration down the track or liquidation down the track, the ATO tends not to pursue the director at the same time. They will await the outcome of the return that they might get from the winding up or administration of the company first. So it may take some time to see any activity by the ATO, Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstances. So that 21-day period is obviously critical. Um, So if you were to receive one of these notices, um, when's the time to encounter your day-to-day account? Yeah, like Ian. Yeah. And when's the time to come to you and say, okay, I've got this notice, um, what, what action do I have? Well, the fortunate thing is that the ATO is now issuing these notices and putting them on the portal straight away. So although the letter, the notice itself, will be mailed to the director's residential address, and sometimes that's not up to date on the ASIC register, it will be uh, uploaded onto the portal and available to the tax agent uh, as soon as it's issued. And that's when uh, you guys have got to talk to the client immediately and recommend that they start talking to an insolvency practitioner to explore the options, particularly if it's a traditional DPN. At the same time, the key strategy there is to continue to try and negotiate a payment arrangement, irrespective of the notice. You could be looking at the notice from the point of view of advice from an insolvency practitioner, uh, but at the same time, uh, renegotiating a new payment arrangement. And you mentioned earlier a lot of those arrangements, it's coming from an accountant coming to you and saying, my client's got this. It's yes. not so much the client coming to you directly. No, no. no. And and uh, often it will, with Australia Post, it could take a week or so to arrive at the, the, the residential address. And really where it all starts is that you guys will pick it up, email it to the client, start the discussion immediately, and then encourage the client to, to meet with an insolvency practitioner like myself, yep. and start looking at those options that are available under the notice and uh, what do we need to do to plan a successful restructuring mm-hmm. or, or winding up? What what support do we need from stakeholders, for example? Uh, is there a bank involved that we may need to uh, be, be aware of their rights yep. uh, and how uh, a bank might uh, uh, react to an administration and how we can manage that? Uh, ideally... We're looking to try and preserve the business by restructuring. You know, it's very clear from the tax office that if a, if a client uh, has chosen not to engage with the tax office, then they uh, presume that the, the business is in financial difficulty mm-hmm. and should go into administration. So what do you look for, Matthew, when you're talking to <coughs> either the client or us as, as the tax advisor in this case with that hat on? You know, we have a, we have a traditional DPN here. We've got 21 days... You know, is, is it you that talks to the ATO? Is it the, the tax agent that talks to the ATO? Um, is there a point where you say it's not even worthwhile, it's, it's better to, to appoint an administrator straight away? What, what are the 
I suppose, the signals to yourself um, as a best strategy. Um, yeah. For, I mean, everyone's different, I know that, so. But what's your starting point? Well, we'd like to understand the, the extent of the potential exposure for the, for the director. And so we come back to the tax agent and say, well, can we have a look at the integrated client account and the superannuation account and understand, uh, is there any lockdown liability already for late lodgements or unreported debt? We, we go back a couple of years to look at the the compliance history and and understand uh, to the extent of the liability that the director may be personally exposed for. Uh, we then take a look at the financial position of the company and talk to the director about what their objectives are. Do they want to try and save the business? And then we look at the financial position and uh, the stakeholders involved and, and understand well, whether that's possible because the beauty of administration, whether it be voluntary administration or small business restructuring, is it gives the director some breathing space to get advice from an insolvency practitioner, maybe their lawyer and, and, and maybe their accountant as well, to, to look at, well, how can we turn this thing around from what appears to be an insolvent position to, to solvency, making changes in the business, mm-hmm. uh, cutting costs, uh, maybe closing a premises or reducing staff or selling part of a business, could be anything. Mm-hmm. And all those things can be done during a, bin, a form of restructuring administration. So yep. we look at, is this possible? Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now, and, and even late last year, 2021, we could see that there's incredible support from stakeholders in agreeing to compromises mm-hmm. and restructurings where they can see that there's a genuine attempt to, to work through. A business's financial difficulties uh, may not necessarily be due to the COVID restrictions and the whole downturn in the economy at the time. Mm-hmm. might be another number of other reasons, but we've seen overwhelming support from the tax office and from banks who are your, your common type creditors involved, mm-hmm. overwhelming support for, for genuine attempts at restructuring. So we think now is a great opportunity to... Uh, if if the owners of the business are wanting to try and save the business and, and come out of the insolvent position and, and avoid winding up by the ATO, then it's a great opportunity to compromise some debt and uh, restructure the business going forward. Historically, the ATO would only support those sorts of arrangements if they could have a level of comfort that history wouldn't repeat itself and the business wouldn't go and incur another level of tax debt again. Mm-hmm. They would only support restructurings if they could see that there'd been some change in management, change in ownership, some significant changes in the way in which the business was managed going forward, mm-hmm. and a level of scrutiny around forecasting of future profits and things like that. Yep. Uh, that, that seems to have been relaxed to an extent, but could well come back in, in the next couple of years as being their policy criteria mm-hmm. to agree to these compromises. But at the moment, uh, coming off the back of the COVID restrictions... As I say, it's it's a great opportunity to to put it before before the stakeholders, the banks, and the creditors. And we've 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 done a couple this year already that um, we've been amazed at, at at getting results that you probably wouldn't have been able to achieve before COVID. So, is the ATO coming forward with these DBNs before banks are chasing? Yes, yes, and in fact, the banks are quite concerned about this and. If you if you look for example at the Queensland construction industry, um, I had some did some research with the QBCC and uh, the Building Industry Credit Bureau earlier this year, and their biggest concern going forward was 
the extent to which the ATO recovery activity would have on the, the, the success of a, a builder. Obviously, the biggest concern is for home builders that, that were locked into 2019 materials prices and have labour and material shortages at the moment. But uh, there's, there's a level of concern out there, and I think there's an increased level of inquiry by banks to understand a customer's uh, compliance with the ATO obligations. Yeah, because I know when, when we get annual review letters from banks reviewing clients each year as part of their loan arrangements, they always ask for the ATO portal printouts and stuff like that. So they would see it if there were outstanding <coughs> balances. Mm. So I was just curious as to where their patients are running out well, no, after the ATO can... is running out of their patients. Well, I think a garnishee notice will be the catalyst yeah. for a bank's concern. Yeah. At the moment, uh, we haven't seen too much from... The banks, we are uh, members of uh, panels as consultants to the banks. The banks will ask us to go and review the viability of a customer for them, uh, but we haven't seen a lot of that work. The banks are managing that themselves uh, and they are very supportive of their customers through this period. And We don't think that's going to change for some time, but it, it could change uh, on a case-by-case basis if, if, if a garnishee notices start to get issued and I think the tax office is uh, taking a wait-and-see wait approach to the success of these penalty notices. Mm-hmm. What percentage of these notices are resulting in a payment arrangement and how successful are those payment arrangements? And if, if that means that they're recovering all that revenue that, that built up during COVID, well, they might just stick to that. If, if uh, they're not going to have the success that they expect in the time that they want, they might start uh, ramping up the penalty notices to, to recover P, uh, sorry GST. Mm-hmm. And, and again, as I say, garnishing notices might be something else that they would, would potentially start issuing as well. But I think it could be contrary to their, their, their community support policy that, as I said before, a garnishing notice has, has a drastic impact on a cash flow of a business. And I'm not sure if that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. At the moment, they're just wanting people to get into a payment arrangement and start paying. We've got a DPN issued to us. We've talked a little bit about you know what they look like and what they're chasing. I suppose, and we've you know, we've got some strategies, and you've talked about you know what you will do as a liquidator um, or an administrator, which one's better. Um, are there any other defences that is available? I mean, we just know you know we've worked hard for twenty five years or whatever, and you know mm. the things happen as you said beyond control of company. What are some of the preventative strategies or, or how do we manage this DPN for two reasons? One is, I suppose, we've touched on is um, we don't necessarily want the marketplace knowing they're in a spot of honour. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. competitors come in or, or clients uh, withhold, um, you know, or supply starts own painful, you know, things yeah. like that. So I suppose, you know, some of the things that... And then who does see a DPN other than the tax agent? I mean, is it out there in the no market? No one else sees it. But what the tax office have started doing is disclosing tax debts that are not being managed. And we understand that there's something being in the order of 70,000 warning letters issued this year to businesses that are not making any attempt to manage their tax debts and uh, seek a payment arrangement. Now, those debts that exceed $100,000 or more, are $100,000 or more, they are being disclosed to two reporting agencies, credit reporting agencies at the current time, and... That, again, has a drastic impact on potentially on a business's cash flow and trading ability because the banks and the major suppliers to most industries 
will subscribe to credit reporting agencies and they receive daily information on defaults. This will now include details of tax debts. So the ramification of that disclosure is that the credit provider to the client and the bank supporting the business, for example, with a business loan and an overdraft, will we'll, we'll get notice of that information. And it's not so much public information, it's information available to people who are willing to pay a subscription to the credit reporting agency to get that information. So if I wanted to do a search on a credit search on one of your clients, it can be a limited search without the privacy consent. It can be done on information that comes from that uh, credit reporting agency. If I wanted a full search, I'd have to get your client's privacy consent. But uh, the idea with the reporting agencies is that they are circulating current data to their membership about adverse credit information about their potentially their customers. Yeah. So that, that, that has a big impact. I think the key message, though, is even if all this is happening and the penalty notices has expired, continue as part of a payment arrangement as best you can because mm-hmm. the legislation makes very clear that while you're in a payment arrangement, there'll be no other recovery action taken. So if I'm in a, in a payment plan situation, will that, will that debt still be reported to the credit? I don't think so, no. So as long as, as, long as we're communicating with the ATO and, and are sticking to what we've all obliged to do, we're okay? Yes. Um, so something pops up and we do, though, not do that. Is there any other defence? Yes, yeah, sorry, um, there, there are that defenses. That a DPN for a, a taxpayer to, yeah, to get sorry, around yeah. it? There, there are. There's particular quite confined defences available under the Tax Administration Act legislation, and they are quite similar to defences available to directors under the Corporations Act for defences against insolvent trading claims. And so the defences that are available to a director are that they took all reasonable steps to prevent the company from either incurring the debt or, or to take steps to otherwise comply with the penalty notice, such as within 21 days appointing an administrator, a liquidator or a small business restructuring practitioner. And I've had to advise clients on this in the past and as far as I know, they've been successful with this defence and what they've had to do is document during the 21 days how they approached an insolvency practitioner. They met with the insolvency practitioner, they got advice in writing, they attempted to call a board meeting of directors to appoint the insolvency practitioner. That is all evidence that they had to document as part of their defence to show that they took all reasonable steps. The other defence available uh, to a director for a penalty notice is the the illness defence. Due to illness or some other good reason, it's unreasonable to expect that the director should have taken part in management of the business when the the liabilities were incurred. It has to be serious illness and it has to be uh, serious enough such that the person's incapacitated and has no ability whatsoever to participate in management. Uh, This has gone to the courts in the past and it's got to be as serious as being in hospital bedridden. So that, that's, that's an interesting point because, you know, a lot of cases you might have three or four directors yeah. um, at a company and you always get the odd one that says, no one told me anything, didn't do anything. I mean, is, is ignorance not a defence? Not a defence. Not a defence, <laughs> no. So everyone that's sitting on a, on a board uh, on the ASIC register as an example, 
regardless of whether you're there one day a month or 24-7, you're in the same boat as... Because I'm assuming <coughs> a DPN doesn't go to just one director. It'll go to every single right. director of that company. That's right. Yeah, and even former directors that were directors at the time the liability was incurred but not paid. So then how do you herd the cats into um, Very getting difficult. a decision? Mate? Very difficult. And I've... Yeah, uh, the example I mentioned before of the director documenting everything, the company never went into administration. The other director couldn't agree, wouldn't agree. As far as I know, though, the director I was advising was successful in his defence. Mm-hmm. We're advising some directors of an ASX-listed company at the moment and they are anticipating a DPN at the moment and so they are documenting everything they're doing in terms of getting advice from us and we're planning an administration at the moment. Uh, there's some extra steps involved before the administration because of uh, the complexities of the structure and the need to have secured creditors uh, agree to certain things beforehand. Yep. You know, if they receive a penalty notice and it lapses, they can demonstrate, I would think, that they've taken all reasonable steps. So even if this process takes longer than 21 days, they can still file a defence to I say... I think so, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So, you know, regardless from day one, there should be mm. diligent... <laughs> note-taking and, right. and conversations started pretty much straight away. Don't leave it to day 20 yeah. and, and believe that, you know, you're okay. Yeah, and and um, what we've seen uh, even even before COVID is the, the, the prevalence of pre-insolvency advisors that will get on the phone to a director and say, hey, um, I see that your tax debt's disclosed with a credit reporting agency, for example, or I see that there's a winding up application by the ATO against your company. You need to uh, appoint us and we'll solve all these problems for you. That's a different type of advisor and the ATO has warned directors to be wary of untrustworthy advisors. They should really be talking to insolvency practitioners rather than advisors who don't have any qualifications or even professional indemnity cover for mm-hmm. the advice they give. So it's important that uh, at, at this uh, juncture a director makes sure that every piece of advice and communication they have is in writing. And that's what an insolvency practitioner will do. Yep. They'll document their advice, uh, they'll confirm everything in writing, uh, just like a lawyer would. Uh, and, and talking about insolvency practitioners, you touched on a uh, definition before, or, or a title that, that is new in, in the sphere of, of restructuring for businesses, and that's a small business restructuring practitioner. Can you give uh, a bit of a definition and, and, you know, ins and outs on when that person may be used rather than a, a pure traditional insolvency practitioner? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, it's a new regime that came in uh, late last year but really didn't get any uh, movement until probably June this year and we're now seeing a number of these appointments occurring as we know, it's a it's a way of complying with a DPN if if the client appoints a restructuring practitioner. It's available to small businesses, and it's a thirty five business day process. So you're talking about a month and a half process to get an outcome from where the business might a director might have received a penalty notice to the point of creditors agreeing a restructuring plan. And right through that whole process, the director retains control of their own business. 
So an administrator doesn't walk in like voluntary administration. Administrator won't walk in and take control of the business. And the reason an administrator needs to do that is because they become personally liable for the debts of the business going forward. And that's why that level of control is necessary. Whereas in a small business restructuring, the objective of the scheme is to be quick and cheap. Uh, Not the same detail required compared to administration. The proposal is drafted by the practitioner with the director and that's issued a month after his appointment and it's circulated to creditors to vote on. Now a majority of the creditors must support it for it to go through. The company will have to meet eligibility criteria as having total debts of less than a million dollars. They must have their lodgements up to date with the ATO and within a month of the appointment of the practitioner the superannuation must be up to date as well. So they are some hurdles that a lot of small businesses haven't been able to get over. And for that reason, there haven't been a lot of these appointments until, until now. But what's driving the increased insolvency activity at the moment is these penalty notices. No, that's fair enough. So what then happens if, if the business is on a, a repayment plan with the ATO, they can't appoint a small business restructuring? They could. They could anyway. Yeah. They could appoint an administrator as well yeah. or a liquidator. Yep. Um, and the result of that is that they remain uh, protected from that from that tax liability yeah. that was okay. on notice. So then what's the difference, this report that goes out, what's, what's the, the, the difference or the rationale and the similarities with a docker when you go into administration? I mean, the report says I'm going to shave some debt, do so many cents in the dollar. Um, Very similar to a docker. Yeah. It's a small-scale docker. Yep. It's, it's, it's less costly. To give you an idea, the whole process is likely to cost a client somewhere between twelve and fifteen to seventeen thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. A voluntary administration, you times that by two or three. But when you're talking about a trading business, yeah, yeah. And the beauty of the restructuring regime is the the client gets to keep control of their business going forward. the The uncertainty is. Uh, although we've seen the ATO support these, and, and, and I looked at some statistics last night off ASIC's uh, website, 53% of all small business restructuring proposals have been supported. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's only half. Yep. We know the tax office is supporting them. We're just not sure uh, key suppliers, whether they'll, they'll uh, support these sorts of things going forward. So the other benefit of the restructuring regime is, particularly for a licensee with a QBCC here, yep. is that they don't lose their licence. The, the, the licence doesn't get suspended or cancelled by the okay. QBCC, whereas it would in the case of administration or liquidation. Okay. So that's, that's one benefit. And I suppose, too, another, another new area that's come in over the last couple of years um, is the safe harbour yes. provisions. Now... You know how safe is the harbour? I suppose from a <laughs> practical perspective, from from a practitioner like yourself, is it is it something that that we should consider? Um, is it something that needs to be started well before any triggering event? And and how does that work in then with the DPN sort of topic we're talking about today? Yeah, it works together with the DPN and the payment arrangement, and it, it should be part of that full suite of advice that is given early on, and. Safe harbour is a, a form of legal protection. It's not a type of administration. You're not involving a, a harbour ma- You're not effectively engaging a harbour master. You, you, you're engaging a consultant who's a qualified expert who uh, 
uh, and, and sometimes they can be a lawyer, uh, but most of most times it's an insolvency practitioner that uh, determines whether the company uh, is eligible, uh, which avails the directors of protection. So it's a form of legal protection that is available if a company does certain things, and it and it qualifies for the process. And the process is intended uh, for the directors recognising the financial difficulty of business, whether it's insolvent or not, that's something that the expert would determine. Even if it's insolvent, then the objective of the safe harbour process is to uh, turn the business around from insolvency back to solvency. And at the same time, while the company's insolvent and trading, the directors are afforded a safe harbour protection from the possibility of trading while insolvent. So to do that, uh, the eligibility criteria is similar to the small business restructuring in in terms of lodgements, books up to date, and employee entitlements paid up, particularly super. So that superannuation's got to be managed right through the whole process. Then the expert will ascertain whether there's a restructuring plan, not a restructuring plan, but like a, a workout plan that must achieve a better outcome for the company and its stakeholders, uh, creditors. That's a better outcome than shutting the doors and appointing a, a, an administrator or liquidator that day. That's the analysis that's got to be done. And if a better outcome is possible and it's supported by forecasts and some analysis around certain assumptions occurring into the future, then that plan can be executed, uh, monitored by the expert, executed by the directors, it needs to be documented in regular board minutes and then the plan will be successful when the company returns to solvency. If the plan's not successful and the company can't complete all of those objectives and remains insolvent or might go into administration and then liquidation, then a liquidator has a duty to investigate the company's insolvency, to look at whether the directors traded the company while insolvent for a period of time beforehand and that's when the safe harbour protection kicks in is is when a liquidator's investigated the insolvency of the company determined that the company was insolvent for some time and has formed the opinion that the directors uh, may have traded the company while insolvent and during that period of insolvent trading has incurred additional debts that have not been paid that's the claim Mm -hmm. the value of the claim that the liquidator could take against a director because of the safe harbour protection that's been put in place and documented Mm -hmm. and again that's a private arrangement that doesn't get disclosed Uh, it doesn't have to be disclosed to the tax office or to banks uh, or even to employees it's a a confidential engagement Mm -hmm. with having that protection the directors can can confidently say to a a liquidator well we engaged an expert we executed a plan Mm -hmm. if it didn't succeed well we've still afforded that protection Okay. Regardless, and I've had to look at this myself uh, as an administrator, then liquidator of a company, and 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 I'm satisfied that in that particular case I reviewed that the directors had uh, correctly executed their safe harbour strategy. Mm-hmm. Although the plan obviously wasn't successful, and I ended up being appointed liquidator, uh, I'm satisfied that the protections available to them. But you can go back further than the safe harbour. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So if they were insolvent trading two years before they went into the safe harbour, yeah. they're still on the hook. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the safe harbour uh, methodology, I suppose, and, and the whole idea of safe harbour is something that 
most insolvency practitioners will have been working with clients anyway. So it's now been given a term. And so effectively, Ian, if, if we were doing the same things back before Safe Harbour became legislation, well, I'm sure we'd be able to rely on that defence back then anyway. Okay. It's only if the directors, after some time the company has been insolvent, they decide to engage that expert, then they run that risk of there being a, an exposure period there of trading while insolvent when they didn't take advice. Yeah. And I think most of our listeners will know what insolvent trading means, but if you just want to quickly give a definition, so... Yeah, so a company can be insolvent and trade. Insolvent trading is when the company gets to a point of insolvency, and that's an opinion by an expert. So it'll be an insolvency practitioner that'll, that'll, that'll form that view. So it's a very much a hindsight point of position, or otherwise the directors could engage an insolvency practitioner at the current time and ask for a solvency assessment. Um, but once a date of insolvency has been determined by opinion, from that date onwards, if the company incurs additional debt, most common of which would be tax debt, and that tax debt is not paid, even if it's, even if it's part of a payment arrangement, it's, it's insolvent trading. So the liquidator ultimately gets appointed down the track and it's the liquidator that is the only person that has that right. Sometimes creditors do have the right to chase. It's very, un, very rare, though, that a creditor can get the consent of a liquidator to chase a director for insolvent trading. A creditor could do it, but they're limited to the extent of their debt. Not their whole debt, yep. but just their debt that was incurred while the company traded while insolvent. So it's, a, it's fairly complex, but... Um, there's often a misunderstanding about insolvent trading and it's it's confined to a certain period of time. It's not all the debts of the business. Okay. And can that opinion be overturned? Yeah, there can be um, opposing opinions and yeah. and um, this area of law is quite complex and it's not too often that uh, a court is asked to adjudicate on, on those sorts of opinions and things yeah. like that, but there have been cases and not too many, but... Um, uh, often these matters get settled commercially. Uh, there can be a, a two different opinions from different practitioners, but ultimately these matters would normally settle. So then just while we're doing some definitions of, uh, of insolvent, while we have you here, Matthew, something that confuses me sometimes when you're reading in, in, in articles and the media, etc., is you know someone gets appointed as administrator and then on the same day someone else... <coughs> gets appointed as a liquidator. Mm. Uh, so if if we've got clients that are, are dealing with these type of, of businesses as, as well and, you know, our suppliers or creditors to them, what, what's the, the rationale between appointing an administrator and then a liquidator? And it could be on the same company or different subsidiaries of, of, of a group. Uh, how does that work? And, and what are the ramifications of both? Okay. Well, I don't think it's possible to have... An administrator appointed and then a liquidator appointed either the same day or the next day to the same company. But you can have situations where an administrator is appointed to a company and then a receiver is appointed to the assets of the company by a secure creditor. That can happen mm -hmm. to the same company. You could, as you mentioned, you could have a liquidator of a holding company and an administrator of a subsidiary. Mm -hmm. That can happen. Yep. And there can be certain reasons why that's necessary. Mm -hmm. But it's more common to see a situation where an administrator uh, is appointed and then the bank might say, well, 
oh, I want to control what happens to the assets that are under the bank's security mm-hmm. or secure creditors' financiers' security, they might appoint a receiver privately themselves mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that's quite common. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I was appointed receiver of a concreting contractor and uh, about 10 days before my appointment there was a liquidator appointed. Mm-hmm. So the private lender appointed me receiver 10 days after the liquidator was appointed. Okay. And we're now collecting in and selling the assets that are covered by the private lender's security. So you work together with the liquidator? Yes. Yes, we do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because we know we have different roles. Yeah. Okay. Um, we work together li- with the liquidator in sharing information. Mm-hmm. We assist each other with inquiries and, and um, mm-hmm. sharing copies of documentation that we might need to fulfil our own roles. My receiver role is quite limited. I'm, I'm there to, you know, collect in the assets and sell them and pay the secured creditor. Yep. I do have obligations, uh, of course, to the company, to the liquidator, and particularly to employees. So if I'm collecting in cash, debtors, inventory, mm-hmm. then employees have a first priority for their entitlements out of the proceeds of those assets. Yeah. And so I've got to be wary of accounting to them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, uh, uh, given that a liquidator has been appointed and the entitlements may get pay- not may not get paid for some time, the federal government might kick in with their fair entitlements guarantee scheme and pay those entitlements up front and then the government becomes the priority creditor rather than the large group of employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so if our, if our clients have, have secured assets or of a company that goes into liquidation, we can still appoint a receiver yes. on those particular assets. Yes. We just don't have to let the liquidator right. That's right. Okay. They've got the right to elect to do that. Yep. Now, there are rules around timing mm-hmm. and there are rules around uh, what you can do to take possession of your own security depending on the type of security it is. So, um, That sounds like another full topic it in is, itself. It like, is. So we won't push you too hard down that. Um, well, we are talking direct penalty. You know, I can prepare here, for that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's good. So I suppose... Um, you know, with all that's happening out there and, and the, the increase in DPNs coming out from the ATO and, um, you know, we, we've seen the Reserve Banks now increase rates again uh, and again there's there's potential for more rate rises. So what's what's through your network? I mean, your firm is across Australia and across a lot of industries. What What's the general business sentiments and observations that are coming through your network with respect to the, the current environment? It's interesting. Uh, you know, obviously we get a, a mixed mixed feedback, but the general feedback is that business sentiment is somewhat positive. Um, some industries are, are going into busy periods. You look at hospitality. and uh, Across the board, particularly SMEs, they're concerned about increasing input costs, labour and skill shortages, and, and, and recently some of them have had this uh, increase in their rent uh, due to the CPI uh, of around 7%. So that's concerning them uh, in terms of uh, profitability and uh, how they're going to cover those increased costs and their capacity to trade, the ability to trade at full capacity given that pretty much everyone's suffering from from labour shortages. So those things concern them, but uh, we've also noticed that a number of insolvencies are being driven by shareholder disputes and these disputes uh, typically come out from the back end of the COVID restrictions and people unhappy, uh, wanting to get out of businesses or 
uh, not not agreeing to exit plans, uh, payouts, that sort of thing. So those shareholder disputes can end up in a type of insolvency appointment. It doesn't have to be an insolvency appointment. It could be a, a voluntary type uh, restructuring. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's yeah, quite a number of those have been going on as well. And where those disputes get to the point where they, they are so costly that they create the insolvency of the business that will end up in an insolvency administration. We've got one right at the moment, which is a voluntary administration uh, driven by a shareholder dispute. So we're looking at selling the business at the moment and um, we've advertised that business and currently considering offers for the business at the moment. Okay. The shareholders have the right to buy, to uh, put, put offers in for the business as well. Yep. As yep. part of that process. Okay. But, um, okay. And you touched on hospitality. What... Um what other industries are you seeing that are having a bit more heat applied to them than others? Yeah, transport's still suffering yeah. and you know, increased fuel fuel costs, um, again, labour shortages. Uh, the cost of their, their fleet is, is shot through the roof. Mm-hmm. There's a huge second-hand market for transport uh, equipment at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, gone beyond the new price of, of vehicles. Um, because the lead time for new vehicles is, is in excess, certain vehicles, is in excess of uh, 12 months. So uh, they're suffering. Uh, I, some IT and professional services seem to be under a bit of stress at the moment and I'm, I, I just wonder whether that's because of some businesses pulling back on their IT expenditure or, or holding off their IT expenditure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've started talking to a few, quite a few IT businesses okay. as well. Um, I suppose the big one is um, in the media anyway. Whether I mean your opinion will tell us otherwise. But building and construction is it is it as bad as the media is playing it up, or is it because there was some big brands that went under, or it relates to people's homes, etc. So there's a lot of emotion involved. What what are the stats around building and construction at the moment? Well, we believe there's been a 34 percent increase in insolvencies in the construction sector since uh, mid this year. Well, sorry, calendar calendar year twenty twenty two. Now that that really doesn't come as a surprise, for two reasons. Insolvency numbers would had dropped right off anyway during twenty 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 one, so they're, they're normalising. Mm-hmm. And the second aspect is obviously the the increase due to the uh, the number of external factors that are playing in that sector at the moment, um, and it's the home builders that are the ones that are most stress. They're the ones that have locked in at 2019 prices. They're the ones that are suffering from material shortages uh, because of what's going on with geopolitical issues, um, uh, supply concerns, uh, framing timber and steel materials are the two types of materials that most impacted by the shortages and the, uh, the war, Ukraine and Russia. Uh, because 70% of all framing timber comes from the Balkans and uh, Ukraine. So that's had a huge impact on their, their sector. Uh, the smaller builders uh, with a turnover uh, up to $15 million, uh, are the biggest concern for the QBCC. They believe that, that segment of the licensees has, uh, has sustained huge growth from, from, from 2017-18 uh, with the home builder subsidy. Uh, I think it was eighteen, nineteen, the subsidy, and then locking in at pre-COVID prices, and now having to complete those builds now mm-hmm. um, with all the delays. They're the ones that are suffering from huge shocks to 
their profitability. And uh, they're, they're also worried about the combined impact of increased enforcement activity from the ATO uh, and the likelihood that they're, 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 they're under that much pressure that we'll continue to see more insolvencies. I think with the prominent collapses of Privium, ProBuild and Condev that all occurred around late last year and earlier this year really scared a lot of people. My contacts at QBCC and, and other experts are telling me that you know they're not expecting a tsunami of insolvencies in the construction sector, but obviously there'll be a lot of stress in that, in that sector for the time being. It's not going to be for years and years. They, they seem to believe that these external factors will, will resolve themselves uh, probably over the next uh, six to 12 months. Yep. So does QBCC have any flexibility around how it can uh, administer the licensing provisions? I know, you know, the ATO during COVID were, were quite um, re- respectful of everyone and the, and the community. Mm. Is QBCC have the same sort of discretion or is it a pretty hard and fast rule? Well, I understand uh, in 2020 they did extend the deadline for lodgement of financials for those that have to report. Uh, my understanding is at the current time that although the licensing legislation dictates that a licence can be immediately suspended or cancelled due to insolvency, their policy has been since last year is to issue show cause notices when when builders go into administration or liquidation and that gives the builder the opportunity to work with the administrator or liquidator to assign building contracts to a solvent builder, uh, which which is uh, certainly more beneficial to owners than than, than not having a builder at all. Um, the other aspect is uh, more of a preventative type management arrangement where you're engaging with QBCC early on. If the builder realises there are some financial difficulties, then to avoid any sort of uh, show cause notice, suspension or cancellation, if uh, the builder can go to the QBCC with their advisors. Uh, that would be yourselves and an insolvency practitioner would go with a plan to show that a workout can be achieved, mm-hmm. um, supported by forecasts and, and uh, uh, profit forecasts, for example, yep. then uh, it's likely the QBCC, if they could see that that's possible, then they'd support that rather than doing any enforcement on the licence. Yeah. And have you seen any of the... The trickle down effects in the subcontractors from the, the big builders that are that are struggling to because you know, <clears throat> not all of them have hundreds and hundreds of individual employees. They usually subcontract out a lot of the, the yeah, work. Are we, yeah. are we seeing any of that come through? Well, nothing specific from Condev or Probil, but we are seeing starting to talk to a, a lot more contractors. Yeah. Uh, nothing specific uh, from Condev or Probil, but um, general the market the general conditions. Market. Yeah, and is that is that the same around Australia? Because I mean, you've got offices all around the place. Is what, Southern states is as hot up here uh, down there as it is here with respect well, to construction, or is it different industries affected? Uh, there's a fair bit of property development issues going on down in Victoria, and again, if the media is accurate uh, with their headlines, then it seems to be more home builders falling over in Victoria than there are in Queensland. Yeah. 
Um, but you've got to remember that um, insolvencies have probably picked up faster in Victoria and New South Wales than they have in Queensland because of the lockdown, the impact of the extended lockdowns. And our offices in Melbourne and Sydney are reporting that the, the, the number of appointments have certainly picked up cool. significantly. Well, we've unpacked a lot throughout yeah. this episode today, I mean, which is excellent. Obviously, we've covered a lot regarding the DPNs and then obviously speaking about the, the market sentiments and, um, and a few other bits and pieces in there, which has been excellent. It's been really great to, to hear your expertise on that and to, to comment on it because obviously, as you're saying, from the statistics that are out there, it's quite topical at the moment with the, the number of um, notices that are going out and, and obviously what's likely to come as well. So just to, to go over, I guess, some of the, the key points throughout the discussion, the 21 days obviously is a, a very big one and, and you know, the, the immediate actions that you take within that period, um, of course, engaging with your accountant and then likewise in with yourself and, and that connection there. Um, but uh, would you also say that uh, to avoid the risk of receiving a DPN, you've, you've got to look at, uh, I, I guess, your, your company meeting your ongoing lodgement um, requirements and, and of course those payment obligations and, and managing payment arrangements with the ATO? That's right. If if a client feels that they're not going to meet those those compliance deadlines, mm-hmm. then get in contact with the ATO and, and then but talk to you guys first as to who's going to make the contact and renegotiate the payment arrangement at that time. Now uh, being proactive, uh, the ATO will uh, will be appreciative of, of, of the communication. Yep. It's really to their discretion whether they choose to uh, grant another payment arrangement and at the same time issue a, a DPN, but uh, there may well be cases because of a subjective nature of the decision-making that the payment arrangement can be renegotiated and there won't be another DPN. Sorry, there won't be a DPN. And I know, as you say, obviously the the engagements that you've had have come from accountants and more so than those directly but uh, if there's someone out there listening that is looking for more information on this and and obviously wanting to find out what they can do is i know you've alluded to some of the preventative steps but obviously have an in-depth uh, conversation further to that um, what is the best way to get in contact with you matthew and um, and have those discussions well they can contact me by phone mm-hmm. probably best to contact me on my mobile or by my email address. Perfect. We'll, we'll include those details in um, in the release as well. So, um, yeah, we'll make sure that people people have those. But it's been, as I say, it's been excellent. You know, we've covered a lot here and, and I think it's going to be um, really valuable to those listening. So thank you very much for, for coming in, Matthew, today. Thanks, Chris, for the opportunity. Great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, thanks, Matthew, for the extended discussion as well around um, some topics that drifted a little from DPN. Um, but I think our listeners will very much appreciate the commentary. For business owners seeking accounting, taxation, business advisory and superannuation support and assistance, please feel free to get in contact with the advisor team at Archer Gallon Redshaw. Led by Ian Walker, Smiljan Jankovic and Valda Glynn, our firm are a Brisbane CBD-based accounting practice supporting businesses across a variety of industries throughout southeast Queensland and nationally. You can get in contact with our team via the website www.agredshaw.com.au via email at info at agredshaw.com.au or contacting 073002 2699.